Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, I like movies. This time of year is kind of a movie-intensive time of year, right? Uh, We've got the Golden Globes, we've got the Academy Awards, there's always a lot of good movies that come out at the end of the year, and and I I like movies. And I think the reason why I like movies is because I like stories. I know that's a shock to those of you who know me well, but I I really like a good story, and so I, I enjoy movies. And so when I think about some of the movies and some of the good stories that I really like, you know, I've got, I've got some favorites, just as you do, I'm sure. One of the, my favorite stories uh, is from the movie Hoosiers. This is kind of an oldie but a goodie. Back in the 80s, this, this great movie Hoosiers came out. It's a story of a high school coach, Norman Dale, who goes to a very small school of Hickory High, and he kind of gets them rallied around him and around the superstar player that comes back to the team, and they, they compete at a very high level. I mean, too bad they didn't win the title, but they, they competed really well. I mean, Hoosiers is a great movie. Another one of my favorite movies, though, is, is Lonesome Dove, this, this classic, epic miniseries, um, also from the 80s. Apparently, I had my entertainment, I got off the train at some point, but they loved Lonesome Dove, a uh, great miniseries about this group of cowboys that get a herd of cattle and drive them from South Texas and, and hope to get them all the way to Montana. I mean, it's too bad they never got there, but, but it was, it's, it's a fascinating story about these cowboys driving this herd of cattle. Another movie that I love, another story I love is Cinderella Man. I, see, I have been to the movie in the last 20 years. Uh, Cinderella Man, a story of James Braddock, a boxer who gets down on his luck in the Great Depression, and you know he can't uh, get a job to provide for his family. He ends up taking some government assistance, and, and things are really bad. I mean, it's too bad he never had a chance to fight again. Too bad he never had a chance to to try to win the heavyweight title back. You know, if you have seen any of these movies, at this point, you ought to be standing up and yelling at me. You ought to be standing up and saying, hang on, you need to go home right now and put the DVD in and watch it again. But this time, don't stop at the three-quarter mark. This time, watch it all the way through because in all three of those stories I just said, I left out the triumphal conclusion, didn't I? You see... In Hoosiers, Coach Norman Dale and the Hickory High School basketball team didn't just get better and compete. They went all the way and won the state title against all odds. In Lonesome Dove, Woodrow and Gus and the boys didn't just get together a herd of cattle and attempt to get them to Montana. They got all the way there. And not only did they get to Montana, Woodrow even made it all the way back to Texas. See, in Cinderella Man, James Braddock didn't just get down on his luck and out of work. He actually had an opportunity to fight again and to win the heavyweight title, to to pay back every debt that he had ever owed during his time of misfortune with the prizes that he won from from his fights. See, in all three of those instances, if the story I told first was was inaccurate because I hadn't gotten to the end of the story. If, if I'm going to accurately understand Hoosiers and Lonesome Dove and Cinderella Man, I need to see it all the way through. I need to hear the end of the story if I'm going to really get it right. You know, today, 
we're going to talk about something, another story. And it's the story of eternity. It's the story of God's interactions with mankind. It's a story that has protagonists and it has an antagonist. It's a story that has good and it's a story that has evil. And you know what? If we're not careful, if we don't watch all the way to the end of the story, we can begin to think that evil wins. Because we live in a world right now that has evil. And the evil that's in the world is not too hard for us to quantify or to realize. We don't have to think very far or very hard to mention something like Sandy Hook. and You know what I'm talking about. We don't even have to go all the way to Connecticut. We can stay closer to home and we can talk about the Murrah building. We don't even have to go all the way to Oklahoma City or to some big event like that. We can talk about things that have impacted your life, your family's life. We can talk about drug abuse or alcohol abuse or, or physical abuse. We can talk about things that are, that are improper. We can talk about things in the world which are totally out of whack, things like human trafficking. I was talking to my, my wife earlier this week, and she had read an article about just the problem of human trafficking in the United States where people are, are basically kidnapped and forced against their will to do things that they would not otherwise do. And some of these women who have been forced into this sex trade industry, they were given a barcode on their arm that's a tattoo indicating that they're a property of somebody else. And I hear that and I think, oh my word, what is going on? It's evil that is in the world. See, we see all of these things that are going on around us in our life, in the world around us, and we see this problem of evil that exists. When we see the problem that is evil, then, then we may have some questions. And I don't know if you have these questions a lot or if you have them sometimes, maybe those that you know or or love are asking you these questions. Maybe you have these questions all the time or maybe they just creep into your head late at night. But if we, as we wrestle with the problem of evil, we we have some questions that we need to deal with. And, And one of the questions that we have as it relates to evil is, does God not love us enough? Does God not love us enough? Because if God loved us enough, surely he would put a stop to evil. If God really loved us, if he really cared for us, if he really cared for this person that is the victim of whatever tragedy, whatever crime, whatever, whatever, that God would do something about that, that if he loved us enough, he would do something about that. And that's one of the questions that we have as it relates to evil. But another side of that would be maybe God does love us enough, but maybe God is not powerful enough to do something about it. Maybe God would like to do something, but maybe evil is more powerful than God. Maybe he's unable to corral evil and its effects. Maybe he's unable to protect us from Satan and his schemes. See, when it comes to the problem of evil, we can have some questions. But if if we have these questions, if these are the things that we deal with, then our problem ultimately is that we haven't read to the end of the story. Our problem ultimately is that we've stopped the DVD of history before we see the triumphal conclusion. Because when we see the end, we see that God loves us and he's powerful enough to deal with the problem of evil. And this morning, we're going to look at how God deals with that from Revelation chapter 20. And so really, over the next two weeks, we're going to be breaking down Revelation chapter 20 and Revelation chapter 21 in a series that that I'm entitling M+. And these events detail the things that Jesus does immediately after 
his return to the earth. In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus returns to the earth, and after that time, he does various things on the earth and sets up a new heaven and a new earth. And those events that take place in that thousand years, the letter M is the Roman numeral for a thousand, those things that take place in that thousand years after the return of Christ and beyond are going to be the subject of our series this week and next. And this week in particular, we're going to focus on what these verses help us to understand about the problem of evil. Um, so, if you've got a Bible, open to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. We're going to look at the first 10 verses today. Now, before we look at those 10 verses, though, I think it's, it's really important for us to re- understand where the events of Revelation 20 kind of fit within God's timeline of history. If we were to try to understand what God is doing in Revelation 20 apart from everything else that God has done from creation and everything he'll do in the future, then we can get lost. And so it's helpful for us to orient around what God is doing in history. And really, to, to maybe this is an oversimplified timeline, but if we're to walk through what God is doing in history, the first thing we look at is the Old Testament times. The Old Testament times were the things that happened during the Old Testament of the Bible. Um, these are the events that took place with individuals like Adam and Eve and Noah and Moses and David and Elijah and the prophets. It was a period of time where God was relating and dealing with his people on the earth uh, through a covenant that was established with the law in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. God had established a law in relationship particularly to his people Israel, and he was relating to them in this period of time that was the Old Testament times. Now, there was a, a shift to a second period of time. If the first period of time was the Old Testament times, any guess what the next one was? First service was way sharper than you guys, right? <laughs> New Testament times, right? If the first segment was the Old Testament, the second section we'd say is the New Testament time. And the thing that provided the hinge between the Old Testament times and the New Testament times was the coming of Jesus in his first advent. Jesus came to the earth, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for our sins, and he was resurrected from the grave. And that that critical event of Jesus coming and dying on the cross and raising from the dead is the hinge that ushered us from the Old Testament times to the New Testament times. And these New Testament times are times that are still going now. It's a period of time where God is not just dealing with one nation, Israel, as he was in the Old Testament. But it's a period of time where God is relating to all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, on the basis of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. This period of time began with Jesus, and it continues on today, and will continue on to some point in the future. The next phase of history, the next transition point, will be at the time of the tribulation. The tribulation will begin when Jesus Christ appears in the clouds and all who have trusted in him will be raptured up to him in the sky. This is the event that is, is been, you know, made common in a lot of movies and things. And for whatever reason, when somebody is raptured in the movies, their clothes are always neatly folded in a, in a, in a ball and they always you know, are, are gone up into heaven. But for whatever reason, that's the way it's been depicted. But that is the, the idea of the rapture that there will one day come a time where those of us who have trusted in Christ will meet him in the clouds, and that will leave the earth without believers in Christ 
And at that point, Jesus will begin to judge the earth over a seven-year period. These are the events that are prophesied in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. They're the events that are described in detail in Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. It's a period of great tribulation upon the earth. At the end of that period of tribulation, Jesus is going to return to the earth. And when he returns to the earth, he's going to establish a kingdom, a millennial kingdom upon the earth. For a thousand years, Jesus will rule the earth from a throne in Jerusalem, literally on this planet. He'll return with you and I that met him in the clouds at the rapture. We'll come back with him onto the earth seven years after the tribulation has begun, and we will reign with him for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand-year period of time with Christ's reign on the earth, there will be a judgment which will come upon Satan and upon humanity, uh, unrepentant humanity. And then after that time, Jesus will usher in a new heaven and a new earth that will go on into eternity. This is somewhat of of a rough, maybe it's oversimplified, but calendar of events from creation all the way on into the eternal state, as described for us in the Bible. Now, the events of Revelation chapter 20 to 22 actually occur in those last two blocks. So when we read in Revelation 20 about the things that are happening there, they're actually things that are happening after Jesus has returned to the earth and while he is establishing his kingdom before the new heaven and the new earth. So does that make any sense? This is the timeline of events, and I think it's, it's helpful for us to understand where Revelation 20 fits as we dive in to understand a little more about it, and specifically for the purpose of our time today, what we learn about the problem of evil from Revelation chapter 20. So with that backdrop, let's look now at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 10, as we you know, dive in to understand more about this, this problem of evil. We'll begin, we'll kind of walk through this in three sections, three parts to these verses. The first one comes in the first three verses of chapter 20. So Jesus says, return to the earth, and then this is what happens. John is watching this vision of what's going to take place, and this is what he says. He says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, And he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So in chapter 20, the first three verses, we see the very first things that Jesus does after he returns to the earth. And what he does is he he calls forth an angel from heaven to come down, to take care of Satan. And what he says is, he says, okay, angel, I want you to to grab this chain and I want you to bind Satan himself and I want you to put him in the pit or the abyss. It's basically um, a prison cell designed just to hold this guy. And I want you to put Satan in that pit. I want you to put Satan in that abyss. I want you to put him in that prison and I want you to cover it up and we're gonna lock him away for a thousand years. Is Jesus aware of the problem of evil? Absolutely. The first thing he does upon his return is he's to take the one who is perpetrating evil on the earth and he takes him and he places him in prison and he locks him away for a thousand years. 
Why just a thousand years? We'll talk about that in a minute. But just realize that the first thing that Jesus does is he locks him up. Now, I think it's interesting that Satan, who is perpetrating this evil on the earth, is described in his activity or his actions in these first three verses as one who is a deceiver. I mean, of all the things that you could use to describe Satan, in Revelation 20, he's talked about being a deceiver. And I think the reason why is because that's so much of what Satan does. Satan wants to deceive. He wants to have us who follow God, who know God. He wants us who maybe are in process of trying to come to know God. He wants to deceive us and accept you know, to exchange truth for a lie. This is what he did with Adam and Eve. Satan slithers into the garden. God has said, don't eat from this particular tree, and Satan tries to deceive. He says, no, 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 no. Eat from that tree. God didn't have it right. It's better for you to eat from that tree than to not eat from that tree. And in that way, Satan deceived Adam and Eve. He's a deceiver. This is what Satan tried to do with Jesus when Jesus, before his public ministry began, was, was in the wilderness fasting and praying. Satan appeared to him and tried to tempt him. Satan tried to deceive Jesus into thinking that it would be better to, to make his, his power and his identity more of a parlor trick by jumping off of a, of a cliff and having angels catch him or, or turning you know, rocks to bread so that he has something to eat or, or something like that. He was trying to deceive Jesus into thinking that was better than, than God's way. He was trying to deceive Jesus into thinking that it would be better to receive the nations as a possession from Satan in some kind of counterfeit exchange than to receive the nations as a product of his obedience to God through death on the cross. Satan was deceiving or trying to deceive Jesus. This is what happened in the the people that were alive at the time of Jesus. They were deceived. Why is it that people saw Jesus walking around and didn't see him and receive him as the son of God? It's because they were deceived. Satan clouded their minds so that they exchanged truth for a lie. They saw Jesus, and instead of seeing the son of God, they saw someone else. They were deceived. It's what he's been doing up until now. Why do so many people reject the gift of Christ. It's because they've been deceived by the God of this age, as the Bible would say. They've been deceived by Satan himself. Satan is a deceiver. He's identified as such in Revelation 20. When Jesus returns, he's going to take that deceiver and he's going to lock him away. Now, this is important for us to recognize Satan is a deceiver as we read this because we do not yet live at a time where Satan is locked up. Satan is still alive and at work around us. So we need to recognize that so that we can be alert to his schemes and so that we might not be deceived. You know, I, I, I don't know if this is helpful for you. It's helpful for me. This is kind of a crude analogy. But I, I think that, that Satan, you know, really is, is about trying to convince us that we would rather have fun dip than filet mignon when it comes to our nutrition. It's what he's about. He wants to take something that is worthless something that is meaningless, something that is not good for us, and have us choose that over that which would ultimately satisfy us. Satan wants to deceive us, and, and he tries it all the time. It, it comes, Satan's deception comes to us in many ways. One of the ways it comes is that we are tempted to be deceived into thinking that sex outside of marriage is better than sex inside of marriage. This is 
a deception that Satan offers us. It's prominent in the media. It's prominent maybe even in our peer group. It's prominent all around us, but it's a deception that is authored by Satan himself for us to exchange truth for a lie. God has said that the best expression of sex is the one where it is intended, and that is between a husband and a wife. But we're tempted to be deceived by Satan into thinking that there is a different way, into thinking that there is a better way. You know, it's the same thing that happens in the deception of thinking that it would be better for me to steal from my company or to cheat on my taxes than it would be for for me to to live on a tight budget. So I'm going to compromise in those ways. What is that? That's That's a deception. Satan is whispering in our ears saying that, you know what would make you more happy is to exchange your integrity for a few bucks, for a few things. It's a deception. It's something that Satan is at work. It's the same thing that happens we think, you know what, I would, I would rather sleep in than to worship on a Sunday. I'd rather have other activities than to engage with other believers in some kind of community. It's a deception. It's something that's being whispered in our ear thinking that there's something better for us than what God has for us. And if we're not careful, we can fall to that deception. You know, I don't know the particulars of what's going on in your world. I don't know the particulars of what's going on in your life. But knowing that Satan is alive right now, he's not locked up, he's trying to deceive you and me today. What are the areas of your life where you're being whispered a lie to trump God's truth? We need to remember and to recognize evil for what it is. It's it's coming from Satan who is a deceiver in his nature. So Jesus comes, and the first thing he does after returning to the earth, as he binds and imprisons Satan for a thousand years. Now, the next section from verses four to six tell us a little bit about what happens in that thousand years while Satan is bound up. Look at what it says, beginning in verse four. John again writes and says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so what we see happening after Satan is bound is that Jesus is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years in a literal kingdom that covers the earth for a thousand years while Satan is bound. Now next week, we're going to get into a little more of the particulars of what Jesus is doing and how that connects with you and me, that that will be a subject of our message next week. But for now, just realize that Jesus is ruling for a 1,000 years. Now, now some of you may be wondering, okay, is this for real? Is Jesus really going to rule from the earth for a 1,000 years after he comes? I mean, isn't he just going to come back and then everything's going to be great that there's no more history that's going to transpire? I mean, 1,000 years, is that real? I would say, and, and... You know, Wildwood would understand this to be a very literal thousand-year kingdom that Jesus will reign from the earth. And I I think that 
Our reasoning for that is tied directly to texts just like this one. There's several reasons why we think this is a literal thousand years. One reason why is because this passage is very convinced of the thousand years. Six times in seven verses from 20 verses 1 through 7, uh, six times thousand years are mentioned. It seems to be a, a literal, specific period of time. And it also is important to note that this thousand years is is tied to two events that have yet to occur, but there are two historical events. In other words, the thousand years begins with something and it ends with something. The thousand years begins with the return of Christ to the earth and the imprisonment of Satan, and it ends with the judgment of humanity and Satan and the ushering in of the new heaven and the new earth. It seems like it really is a literal period of time because those are two things that haven't happened yet. You know, some have looked at this and wanted to say that this is somehow an event that is already occurring on the planet. But you know what? We do not live at a time where Satan is bound and imprisoned. We live at a time where Satan is prowling, the Word of God tells us, like a lion seeking to deceive us. For those reasons, I, I think it's, it's, it's fair to ascertain that this is a literal thousand-year kingdom that Jesus will reign upon the earth. And I think that that helps us to understand God making good on his promises to Israel. Because God made promises that they would have a throne and a kingdom and land, and all of those things find a fulfillment on the earth in the millennial kingdom where Jesus is reigning. Um, See, this is a literal thousand-year period of time with Satan bound and Jesus reigning on the earth. Next week, we'll talk a little more about what that means, but it really is a literal thousand years. Now, at the end of that thousand years, something really perplexing happens, and we see what happens from verses 7 to 10. It says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, when you read that, that ought to strike us at least as a little bit strange. Now, why is it that God chose to do it this way? Why imprison Satan for a thousand years, release him, only to immediately judge him in a decisive way? Why is it that, it, that the history unfolds that way with this thousand-year gap in between? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why God chose to do it this way. I think one of the reasons why God chose to do it this way was to demonstrate that Satan will not change. He will not repent. I mean, imagine this. For a thousand years, Satan is imprisoned. For a thousand years, he's in solitary confinement in the pit or the abyss. And all he is doing for a thousand years is not realizing the error of his ways, not repenting and wanting to turn over a new leaf. But immediately upon release, he goes right back to doing what he did before, and that was deceiving the nation. You see, when we see that unfold, we realize that that Satan is really bad, and there's no hope for him. God has demonstrated that in future history in the way that Satan is imprisoned for a thousand years. 
So it tells us something about Satan. But you know what else it tells us something about? It tells us something about people. Because Satan is released from the abyss, he immediately goes about trying to deceive mankind. And guess what? He gains a following. See, there will be some, a remnant of people on the earth who will live through the return of Christ and they will have kids and over that thousand years, the earth will be populated by by real human beings who will be being born and and, and growing up and marrying and having kids and, and dying. And those people will be on the planet for a thousand years. And get this, for a thousand years, they're gonna be in the best environment possible in the sense that Jesus Christ himself will be ruling the earth from Jerusalem. There will be resurrected humans serving in leadership roles all over the planet. This is about as good as it gets when it comes to an environment for a human being to live in. But upon Satan being released from the abyss, what is he able to do? But he's immediately able to to gather up a crowd of people who would want to turn on their Savior and would want to rebel against him. This tells us something about the nature of humanity. It tells us that left to our own devices, we are not set up to follow God, but we want to go our own way. And given the first opportunity in a thousand years, people immediately take off in that direction. It tells us something about us. And it shows the perpetual need of people for Christ. You know, Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins a couple years ago, and his basic premise in the book was that hell was temporary, that given enough period of time, everybody will eventually repent. You know, if you wanted, if, if that didn't sound right to you, which it's, it's not right, if that didn't sound right to you, but you were wondering where you could anchor that in Scripture, Revelation 20 is a great place to go. Because in Revelation 20, we see that a thousand years doesn't change Satan. In Revelation 20, we see that people given the best environment possible, led by Jesus from a physical throne in Jerusalem, clearly identified as Messiah, Savior, Son of God, given the opportunity, will still choose to go their own way. Hell is eternal because apart from the work of God, people simply do not change. So we're left with this issue of evil. And I as we kind of wrestle through our understanding of this, I thought maybe this string would be helpful for us in answering the question of evil. Um, Some of you saw this when you walked in, and uh, some of you probably thought, I wonder if that's going to be like a zip line that Mark's going to come in on. Um, uh, Some of you were disappointed that that didn't happen. Some of you were very glad that didn't happen. Um, But for whatever reason, maybe that was it. Some of you maybe thought this this string was holding the cross up. Um, you know, very, very, very nice of us. But this string is, is, a, is a demonstration to help us understand something about this, this problem of evil. Now, this, this string has an origin. It begins right here. Let's just imagine as the string seems to disappear up there, let's just say that that string goes all the way and is attached to the top of the Devon Tower in downtown Oklahoma City. And let's say that this string, which starts here but extends way, 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 way into the future, out of our vision, Let's just say that this represents human history. Let's say over here is the point of creation. And then maybe this section right here represents the Old Testament history period that we talked about. And and this section here represents the New Testament history section. And, And maybe over here we have 
the tribulation and the, the kingdom reign of Christ. But at this point, at the end of the kingdom reign of Christ, evil is decisively dealt with. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and done with forever. Now, when we look at the string, evil's place and reign on the earth is a very small segment of an otherwise long story. And this is the reality of the problem of evil in our world. See, sometimes when we live in this segment, we look just at this segment and we think evil looks like it's winning. God looks like he's not powerful enough or doesn't care enough. But the reality is that God is powerful enough and God cares enough. And when we look at the whole story, when we see the end of the story, we see that God will take care of it in short order so that for all of that time, we will live in a world without evil. See, our problem is that we haven't read to the end of the story. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. They're going to lead us in just a a moment in a a closing song. But while they're coming up, I, I want to just share with you a little bit about a different question. That question is not so much is God aware of evil or is God powerful enough? But the question is, why does God allow evil just for this part? Because that's where we live. And if, in light of what we've seen, there, this, is the, this is the question that remains. Why does God allow evil right now? Just a couple of thoughts that maybe will help us to answer this. One thought. It's an opportunity for us to recognize and understand God's You know, our God is a gracious God. We live in an era where sin is real and seen and understood and experienced by all of us. And because we see sin, because we know sin, we also can know his grace. I think one of the reasons why God allows evil is for that reason, for us to understand that about himself. I think another thing, though, is that God allows evil so that we have a choice, We are people who are made in the image of God. And part of being created in the image of God is having the ability to choose between right and wrong, good and evil. Now, there's all kinds of theological implications to that, but don't get hung up on that at this point. Just realize God created you with the ability to choose. You know that. And part of living in this era is we have the opportunity to make a choice on the basis of love, to be wooed by our creator into a relationship The evil of the world is a contrast that makes that possible. Also, there's a cosmic drama that God is is playing out in our time. It not only demonstrates his power over evil for you and me, but he also demonstrates his power over evil for angels and principalities who are looking on from eternity. God is demonstrating in our time, in our lives, his authority and his power. And the things that are endured on this planet are a part of his communication to, to all things of where Satan ultimately ends up. See, we need to read to the end of the story. You know, earlier we, we, we looked and we saw um, these different eras of human history that had these hinge points. One of those hinge points, the one that is maybe most significant for all of us, is the hinge point of the cross. And we're going to close today by singing about the cross.
in the hope that we find there from evil and the hope we find in eternity. So please stand and join us as we sing.